You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. Jesus generated more debate, even though he was born 2,000 years ago, he made people so uncomfortable, he generated more controversy, and he still does, and he intended to. He actually set out to create controversy. Who would say something like this? Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And because of me, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Or this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, who would say something like that? Or this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That made people so uncomfortable then, and it still does. Or this one, this was one of the songs that was sung last night in, in the student worship time. Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. I mean, who would say something like that? A few years ago, I was walking through an airport uh, to catch a plane with a friend of mine, another pastor, and uh, this guy in a robe and a shaved head and sandals kind of caught us and stepped out in front. He said, can we talk a moment? And we looked at each other and said, well, we've got a little bit of time. And uh, this man said he was raising money, collecting money for a children's camp. And would we give to this? And uh, we didn't tell him we were pastors. So uh, we said, well, what do you teach at this camp? And he said, we teach children about all the good that is in them and how to express all of the good that is is in them. And we said, "Um, well, we are Christians and we probably are not going to be given to this. And he said, why not? Lots of Christians give to this. Um, And he said, and then he made this statement. He said, all religions are like spokes in a wheel going toward the hub. They all come from different directions, but they're all going to the same place. And that is, if I'm honest, that is such an appealing idea, especially if you live where I live in my neighborhood. I live to the west about a mile and a half right down Winchester. And not only in my neighborhood, on my street, there's a Buddhist family and a Muslim family and a Hindu family, and a Jewish family, and we're Christians. And it is so attractive to think that you've got that many people from that many different religions, it's so attractive to think all religions are basically uh, the same. I went to a convenience store not too far from here, uh, and uh, the man at the the counter, I, I said, where do you go to the mosque? And he told me a mosque right near here. I was not even aware of. And then he mentioned several other places where uh, there are mosques. I mean, we live in a different culture than it was 30, 40 years ago. And a lot of us have friends who, who participate in other religions, believe all kinds of different things about God. And what this young guy said to us in the airport is so appealing and it's so attractive. And it's not a new idea. George Bernard Shaw in the last century said this, there's only one religion, there's a 100 different versions of it. And Gandhi said this, 
I consider myself a Hindu, a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, a Buddhist, follower of Confucius. And it's just such a common idea. All religions basically teach the same thing. The only problem with that is when you begin to ask questions, you discover that's just not true. Buddha did not teach the same thing Muhammad taught. And Jesus was totally different. No one at his time had ever seen anyone quite like him. Maybe you've thought Jesus was, a, or you've heard Jesus was a, 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 a wonderful teacher of good moral value, he, values. He said things like, uh, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, the golden rule. And he taught people about the fatherhood of God and, and the brotherhood of of other people. And I've never understood that idea. I've never understood that. Why would someone who said those kinds of things generate so much op opposition and controversy that people would actually plot to kill him and execute him? And when you think of the crucifixion, though, he was actually killed for saying things like that? I mean, that, that just doesn't fly with me. So what I want to do this morning is I want, to just answer, I want to answer one question, and that is, what made Jesus so controversial that people actually decided to do away with him, get rid of him? What was that? So we're in the book of Mark. I hope you'll open your Bible to Mark chapter 2 and chapter 3. I'm going to read two stories, but the focus this morning is going to be on the second story. We're in this series kind of walking verse by verse through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2 beginning with verse 23. That's the first story. And then the second story in chapter 3, the first six verses. Would you stand in honor of God and His Word as we read this? One Sabbath, He was going through the cornfields. And as they made their way, His disciples began to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees were saying to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's the first story. Second story. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked round at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word and you can be seated. So the, scenes, the scene is a synagogue. And sometimes we get kind of confused, temple, synagogue. There's one temple, it's in Jerusalem, that's where you went to offer sacrifices. There are many synagogues, every little town in, in Israel had a synagogue, and wherever you could find 10 Jews anywhere in the Roman Empire, they had a little synagogue. And you went to the synagogue 
to hear the word of God, much like we're gathered here uh, this morning. And if there was a, uh, I happen to be a priest there, uh, the leader might ask, uh, would you stand up and give us a priestly blessing? And if there was a teacher of the law, he might say, uh, we're looking at these verses. Could, could you explain uh, these verses? And there's one man who's singled out for special mention in this story. It's a man with a shriveled hand, probably hanging at his side, atrophied, just kind of paralyzed. And we're not told how that happened, whether he was born like that way or, uh, or had some kind of an accident. And we're told the Pharisees were present. And if you've been in church any length of time at all, you're probably tempted to hiss right now. Because th- we think the Pharisees were the bad guys. On the contrary, at that time, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were laymen. They were not priests. And they were people who were fully committed to obeying the law of God from the Old Testament. They were scrupulous about that. So in a synagogue service, they're sitting right on the front row, and they're there before the place even opens. That's just the kind of people that they were. They knew the Bible. If you said, uh, turn to Zephaniah, they didn't ask where that was at. They knew God's word, and uh, they, they were guardians of the traditions. They were pillars in the synagogue, and they were watchdogs just to see if people were actually obeying the law of God. So you got this man with a withered hand, and you got the Pharisees, and you have Jesus. And he goes to the synagogue, and the word is out about Jesus. And the question is, is he going to be asked to teach? Um, Is he going to be asked a question? Or is the leader of the synagogue going to ignore him? Because people already knew some things about Jesus, the kind of things he was saying. Maybe people were hoping he would actually ask some questions, and for once the service would be a little more interesting. It says in verse 2, the Pharisees are waiting to accuse him. They've been keeping an eye on Jesus. He's been doing things. He's been saying things they considered blasphemous. And so here he is, and they're increasingly concerned about this controversial rabbi coming to the synagogue. And the question is, what's going to happen? And Jesus does the unexpected. He speaks to the man with the withered hand, and he says, um, hey, come up here in front of everybody. I want everybody to see you. Come stand right up here in in front. And the man may have felt a little bit embarrassed, but Jesus called him uh, to the very front, and you could cut the tension with a knife. Everybody's on the edge of their seat to see what Jesus is going to do. Maybe this man had heard about the healing of Jesus. Maybe he'd seen Jesus heal people. Maybe he was hoping Jesus would heal him. And Jesus gets right to the point. The Sabbath was the issue for these Pharisees. And to be fair to them, they didn't think it was illegal to save a person's life on the Sabbath. Any good Pharisee, if someone's life was being threatened, they they would save their life. They just said the fourth commandment forbids work on the Sabbath. It's God's gift to show us we don't, we're not only workers, we, we, there's more to us than work. The problem is the Old Testament does not define work. So between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus, the rabbis got together and they came up with 39 different classes of work with hundreds of subsets under each one of those. We were going to define exactly what work was, things you could not do on the Sabbath, and they since Jesus was going to violate one of those because this man's condition was not life-threatening. He had a withered hand, but he's not about to die. 
It was not urgent that Jesus heal his hand. I mean, the rabbis taught you had to postpone until after the Sabbath anything that wasn't absolutely life-threatening. I got to thinking this week, if Jesus had just taken some classes in conflict management, he would have known how to defuse this situation. He didn't have to heal the guy at this moment. He could have waited a few hours until the Sabbath was over. Everything would be well. But instead, it's like he picks a fight. He challenges these Pharisees right in front of the crowd. He provokes them. And he says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? I mean, he had just argued two verses before this. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is all about human flourishing. It's about replenishing and restoring and repairing. It's about renewing. So healing a man's withered arm fits right in with the purpose of the Sabbath, just so people could flourish. And the response of the Pharisees, verse 4, they sit silently and they stew. They want to accuse him. But what can you say? I mean, the Sabbath is about restoring people. And could you heal that man's withered arm? That, that fits right in with the purpose of the Sabbath. So they just sit there and they refuse to give an answer. It's like they're missing the forest for the trees. And their hearts, we're told, are like granite. Their hearts are as, are as shriveled as that man's hand. And it says Jesus was angry and he was grieved. And let me just do a little sidebar here. Some people really have a hard time imagining how God can be both loving and angry at the same time. And Jesus loves this man. Jesus loves the Pharisees, but he's angry and he's grieved. He's saddened. So he seizes the moment and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man does what he couldn't do. He stretches out his hand, and it's healed. And Jesus did it without working on the Sabbath. He didn't do anything. He just spoke a word. And the response of the Pharisees, look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Here is Jesus acting in love, doing a wonderful thing, healing a man. And these Pharisees get together with their political enemies to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. The Herodians were followers of Herod, who was the cruelest of the bad kings of Israel, that he was the representative of Rome. And the Pharisees hated the Herodians, considered them traitors. And yet they hate Jesus so much that two enemies get together to figure out how to nail him, how to do away with him. Here's my question. Why? Why? And if you understand that, you understand the book of Mark. If you understand this story in Mark, you have to answer that question. Why were the Pharisees so angry about a man being healed? I mean, what would provoke such an, a reaction against such a positive thing that Jesus did? What, what's going on here? And you might think this is just about customs and traditions, the way they decided to observe the Sabbath. After all, there were many religious leaders who, who encouraged them to be more faithful in, in keeping the Sabbath, keeping their traditions, and maybe they thought Jesus should have been doing that, just clarifying how they viewed the law. 
But no, Jesus did not come primarily to teach people how to view the law that they already had, teach them how to live with what they already knew. There's something more going on here. You misunderstand Jesus if you see him as only wanting to rearrange the furniture of your life. Jesus did not come primarily to bring the chaos of your life into some kind of an order. He doesn't come to straighten out your opinions. He doesn't come to assure you that because you're being good, you're all right with God. There's something more. Or maybe you think it's about the commandments. Jesus is actually adding to the Ten Commandments. I mean, there are many religious leaders who have come claiming new revelation from God. Moses claimed that. Muhammad claimed that. Joseph Smith claimed that. The prophets claimed that. That doesn't explain Jesus. Jesus does not present himself as a new lawgiver or presenting a new and updated version of the Bible. You misunderstand Jesus if you think he's there to throw out the Ten Commandments. Or to undermine the Old Testament. I say, oh, no, no, you've got it all wrong. Here's something brand new. That's not what Jesus was primarily about. He didn't come to give us a new set of rules to make a better society, a new way to save ourselves. I mean, the Pharisees were not primarily upset about the fourth commandment, and Jesus knew it, and they knew it. You think, well, maybe it was just about caring, putting people in front of rules, putting people in front of programs. I mean, didn't Jesus just say, well, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? A lot of people today, a lot of preachers and teachers and religious leaders say the most important thing is love. Of course, many don't define love. We're told what's important is not doctrine, it's not truth, it's just maybe love. Maybe that's what Jesus was about. But no, Jesus didn't come primarily as a healer, someone who would just make people's life better. He's not someone just tapping into the power of God to, he's claiming something more important than that. And don't get me wrong, caring for people is really, really important, but it's not the issue here. When Jesus comes into a person's life, he doesn't come primarily to meet the needs they think they have. He's not our heavenly waiter. We order something and and he provides it. I mean, you got to give the Pharisees a little credit right here. They're not upset because a man's hand has been restored. People didn't plot to kill Jesus because he went around helping people. This is not about customs or traditions or the Ten Commandments, not about the law, not primarily about caring for people and putting people ahead of programs. This is about Jesus himself, who he claimed to be, who he was, and they saw it coming. They understood that. If you look at verse 2, it says they were looking for a reason to accuse him. They knew what he was claiming. They were looking for a way to do away with him. So what I want to do is I want to take you on a super quick tour of the book of Mark to this point from the Pharisees' point of view. If you go back and look, if you've got your Bible, if you go back and look at chapter 1, verse 22, it says people were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority not as the scribes. Many of the scribes were Pharisees. So they didn't like being compared to Jesus. And Jesus didn't do what other religious leaders do and did. He didn't say, thus says the Lord. He said, I say to you. He spoke with authority. That was beyond what anyone had heard. And then verse 29 of chapter 27 says, what is this? A new teaching with authority. So the Pharisees are on the alert. 
chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, there are five stories of conflict. Let me just look at them. First, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. That was last week what John talked about where the guy's let down through the roof. And it says, when Jesus told the guy, uh, your sins are forgiven, verse 5 says some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins by God alone? They knew what Jesus was saying. You can't forgive something that's not against you. And Jesus is saying all sins are against God. So all sins are against me because I claim the right that only God has to forgive sins. And he was the man, like as an implication, I, I did forgive him. Second story, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, he calls this no good tax collector to be a part of his disciple band. And then Jesus goes to a party, this guy throws among all these despicable, low-life people, and the Pharisees are saying, how can you be with people like that. How can you associate with them? And Jesus says, I'm a physician. I've come for people who know they're sick. And he calls himself the great physician. Third story, verse 18. They come and say, why aren't your followers fasting? Now, the Old Testament says you only really fast once a year. That's the day of atonement. That's uh, Yom Kippur. And fasting is a sign of, it's an expression of mourning, of, of sadness, um, and it, it's right to fast from time to time. We, we call our church to, to fast during the month of January to try to prepare us uh, for this year. But the Pharisees came along and they said, if you really want to get God's attention, if you really want to please God, then you'll fast at least twice a week, Monday and Thursday. And these guys, Jesus' followers, are not fasting. And they said, why aren't they following the rules? Why aren't they fasting? Because when you fast, it's the idea that you can only please God by being miserable, gloomy, and solemn. One time I was sitting in church behind this lady, and she had her little daughter there in the chair beside her, and the little girl got up during the pastor's sermon and was looking back at me, and I began making faces at her. Probably shouldn't have done that during the preaching, but I was smiling at her, and she began grinning and kind of laughing a little bit, and her mother said, Stop that grinning. You're in church and smacked her on the bottom. And then she turned and looked at me. And I'm getting the evil eye from, from this woman. And I, I thought, you know, some people, it's like they have just learned their rich aunt has died. And instead of their, them getting anything, she's willed everything she owns to her pet hamster. I mean, you just, some people are just like that. Jesus said, We're not fasting at a wedding. The Old Testament picture of a wedding is the picture when God's going to come and set up his kingdom. It's a time of joy and rejoicing. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom you've been waiting for 2,000 years. The bridegroom is here. Why fast? This is a time for feasting. Fourth story, chapter 2, verses 22 through 27. They're walking along, picking grain. The disciples are. And the Pharisees said, why? Don't you see what they're doing? They're picking grain on the Sabbath. They're working. And Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then the fifth story to confirm what he's saying is true. Jesus goes in the synagogue, heals this man with a withered arm, demonstrating that what he said about being the Lord of the Sabbath is true. By his words and by his actions, Jesus is teaching about himself. 
He is pointing to himself. The point of all of these stories is not the law, it's not healing, it's not fasting. They have one thing in common, Jesus and his authority. He's not teaching people how they should live. He's not presenting a model for people uh, to live. He is pointing to himself. You see, for the Jews, the Sabbath was a gift. It was not only a reminder of God's creation, it was a promise of what was to come, a time of great rest and replenishing and repairing and, and, and being restored. It was like a wedding ring. It was the symbol that we are the special people of God. And when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming to be Israel's husband. He's claiming two things that only God can do, forgive sin and be the Lord of the Sabbath. And they understood what he was saying. They understood exactly. So when you came in this morning, you may have had one idea about who Jesus was and is, but you got to rethink it. In his little book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the kinds of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And he was right. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. Either he's a crazy person, you ought to just forget him, or he was an evil liar, or he is who he says he is, which means your entire life has to revolve around him, and you throw yourself at his feet, and you say, command me, whatever you want. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I like to think of God as, and then they fill in the blank. I like to think of God as, as if what we think actually determines what God is. Jesus didn't come to negotiate his identity with any of us. He's here to tell us he is Lord and what that means. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. If you're here and you know you're not a Christian and you're asking, who is Jesus and what does he say? Here it is. He says he's the rightful Lord of your life. He says, you do not have the right to live an independent life apart from him. You don't have that right. He claims complete authority over your life. Creator and king of the world is who he is and the world that he made. That's who he says he is. And that's what you got to deal with. And those of you who know Jesus as, as redeemer and, and savior, even we struggle with this. I mean, we redefine his demands. We no, there's times of rebellion in, in our life, and we just don't want to admit it to him. Friends, Jesus is not interested in changing your opinions. He came to change your life. He's not interested in telling you what to do to save yourself. He came to save you. 
He's not interested in meeting some pressing need that you have. He may not do that. He may show you a need you didn't even know that you had. He's here to change you to be more like himself. He is Lord. And friends, we just have to realize that's what he said and who he is. And some of us, truth be known, we're like the Pharisees. We kind of think we got it all together. And because we're good, we're okay with God. And Jesus is it's not the case at all. And some of us are like this guy with the withered hand, and we know that we're not good. And we really need to have some broken things in us healed. And Jesus said, I came for every one of you, and you need to understand, I am absolutely the Lord, and your life must revolve around me. Do you pray to Jesus when you're in trouble? And then because life is just so busy, you, you kind of forget about him? Either he is who he says he is, and he answers your prayer, or you need to forget him. You can't be neutral about Jesus. He didn't leave that option open to us. Either he cannot hear you, because he's not who he says, or he can, and he needs to be the center of your life. You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.